Welcome to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling. You are about to discover impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you, so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Be sure you visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com. While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now tune in, get ready, and enjoy the journey of emerging as a leader of exception in the 21st century. Welcome everyone to the Find Your Leadership Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Nettling, coming to you from Roswell, Georgia. The goal of this podcast is sharing topics and guests that will empower you to grow as a confident leader and take your business or your life to the next level. Today, I'm very happy to have Miles Wakeham on my show. I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) We'll have my daughter cut that out. (laughs) That's a first. (laughs) Today, my guest is Miles Wakeham, and let me tell you a little bit about Miles. Miles is an Australian who migrated to the USA in 1989 and has since become a multimillionaire, lives a 100% free and unconstrained life, no job, yet never graduated from high school, let alone went to college. He is a self-made business focused technologist who was one of the early members of the biotechnology corporation Amgen, now largest biotech company in the world, has made fortune on Bitcoin since 2011, owns a portfolio of rental properties. Miles was one of the few survivors of a massive auto accident in the outback in Australia in the 1990s, which forced him to question life, purpose, and direction. Since rebuilding himself from that, he knows how to handle and migrate adversity, including taking advantage of medical tourism all over the world for major surgeries. He has honed those skills to live a life unconstrained He spends 50% of his time in the U.S. and 50% of his time roaming the world, seeking out new opportunities, and teaches the art of financial sustainability to his audience. He has a book coming out on the subject, as well as an audio course, Success in the Rental Real Estate. And in 2021, Miles and his wife bought a large compound in central Mexico with a bullfighting ring in it and are in the process of demolition and development to turn it into a luxury home and world-class recording studio. Just one more adventure for Miles. So, so cool. Today, I thought we'd talk about financial independence. I'm sure that's on a lot of people's minds today. And so 
please welcome, welcome Miles Wakeham to talk to us about financial independence. Hey, Miles. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Good. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And so we always start with an easy question. Just tell everyone. I gave a clue as to something about where you live, but where in the U.S. do you call home? Oh, I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I guess when I'm in the United States, uh, we have a, a property in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, so I, I guess I would call that home. Although these days I'm spending less time there as I have my projects Mexico. in other corners. Yeah, which is I'm in Mexico right now. So it's kind of indicative of what's going mm. on this year. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that that's an easy process to um, turn a bull ring. Into, uh... <laughs> well, the bull ring's gone now. We we demoed that. So we're back to land again. And yeah, I'm dealing with foundations and, uh, and all well, the and... challenges that goes with an acre of land and building a lot of uh, structures on it. So on in a foreign area that you don't have <laughs> your favorite workers and things. <laughs> That's nothing. I mean, <laughs> I, no, you know, at the end of the day, I, I can make every excuse under the sun why something is too hard and then I would do nothing and it'd be miserable. So yeah. I, I tend to gravitate towards the, I guess I'm, I'm the guy who goes into the burning buildings when everyone else is running <laughs> out and I tend to find all the nice little trinkets are left behind when I do that. So uh -huh. consequently, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just the nature of yeah. the nature of way it is. When it's uh, comes uh, with a lot of effort and hard whenever it's all done you appreciate it I think so much more yeah that's true I mean it's something also I noticed um it, it's funny I left Australia when I was 25 so I had my youth and my upbringing and my I guess adulthood mm -hmm. <laughs> occurred while I was in Australia and uh, I start realizing when I left and, and having spent a lot of time outside of Australia that um, there's a lot of interesting character traits that we have that we don't really, really celebrate much in Australia. But the one that seems to come back to haunt me all the time is that you're raised in a country where everything crawling around on the ground will kill you. Kill you. That's so um, true. And God forbid you step in the water because there's a jellyfish, you know, it's <laughs> got your name on it. I mean, and it's sharks everywhere and crocodiles in the north. And mm -hmm. it's it, it's amazing anyone survives in that country. But, yeah. you know, even at school, you're taught survival. It's like a you get math, history, English and survival. <laughs> um, but that's normal there because, it, you know, that's how it is. You, you were taught at a young age how to exist in the outback and find water, yeah. um, how to start a fire without any matches and things like that. The, the stuff, I guess, like, you know, maybe the scouting movement would teach people, <laughs> but um, for the average person in Australia, that's part of your schooling. I, I started realizing that if you're ground to assume that that's normal, you get this kind of innate ability to mitigate risk and it once you once you kind of become comfortable with the fact that everything's going to kill you, so you just tread lightly and you're sensitive to nature and you're sensitive to things around you, it's actually quite empowering because mm -hmm. what it ends up doing is that you can transform that into business 
and into like the projects I do all over the world. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to be Ernest Hemingway living, you know, or, but I, at the same time, I, I start realizing that when, when the well starts drying up of opportunities in one place where you are, then just get a plane ticket and go to somewhere else. Yeah. And that's kind of been my, my mantra, I guess. So funny. <clears throat> a few things that you said brought some memories to me. First of all, I, I first time I realized everything that you just said about Australia was there was a, a Toastmaster that came to a meeting and she talked about her trip to Australia and her trip was everything there will kill you. <laughs> and she just <laughs> she just went down the list like you did of you know the flowers, the plant, the animals, the sharks, everything you know. No worry, but I, I think too that your point about having that sense of awareness of your surroundings, that detail-orientedness is really a strength for sure in business. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that once you start becoming a bit more comfortable uh, with that, you can train yourself to transcend it. Mm -hmm. And then you don't think so much about it. The, the risk mitigation becomes subconscious yeah, and you become a bit more streetwise, but it's not mm -hmm. really in an urban sense. I mean, we're talking more just. And it's it's a weird thing. I was I was thinking about this the other day. Um, one of the things that we learn in Australia, which has really served me very well, mm -hmm. is to understand that we're not anything more than just another species, and we're just as much subject to being somebody else's lunch as we are yeah. about you know eating and we have to be uh humble in that role having said that we also have these enormous powerful strengths um we're our, at our best when times are at their worst we you know which mm -hmm. is not something you see in other species um we're also incredibly gifted tool makers we make things to help us, which allows us to kind of scale and to evolve at this rapid mm -hmm. pace. And these are wonderful characteristics, but at the same time, we have all these flaws, greed, envy, fear mm -hmm. of missing out, um, dominance, uh, all these things that are very dangerous and have to be managed as well. You start realizing that, you know, every other species has its pros and cons too. The, the fact is that we all exist in this world of uh, what I would call uh, uh, kind of cycles or polarities. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is driven by a positive and negative balance in yeah. everything. You know, our planet wouldn't spin if it didn't have a north mm -hmm. and a south pole with its magnetic forces. The sun rises, the sun sets, the mm -hmm. moon rises, the moon sets, the waves you know, rise and fall. I mean, these are just normal things that we just take for granted. Even the fact that we can communicate right now mm -hmm. is because sound is a resonance in terms of cycles and waves. And, and what I did was learning that at a very young age, particularly when I learned how to surf, I started to, for some reason, I could connect these normal, everyday universal cycles and kind of put them into a business sense. Hmm. And as a result, I spent, and I learned this the hard way. I, I was somebody who had a business when I was 17 years old, uh, employing people, doing, you know, big projects in the, in the software business. 
and working, oh, I don't know, 80 hours a week, 100 mm. hours a week, just because that's what it is. When you run your own business, the buck stops on your desk and you just work it. Mm -hmm. And I did this for years and years and years. When I came to the United States, I brought the same work ethic with me and I, I toiled the same way. Um, yes, it did work out fine for me in terms of um, benefit, but those benefits didn't necessarily come from my toil. They came from situational advantage. Mm. I walked into a startup when there was no one there. They gave me a ton of stock options because they had to incentivize people to go and work there. I had no idea this was going to turn into a biotech corporation that was, you know, on the S&B and, and my stock options were worth millions. Mm. I had no idea, but that was luck. Mm. It wasn't hard work. I was not going for that. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted a job and I was proud of what I did and what I could bring as value to the company, but I didn't expect that mm. when I got it. I kind of recoiled from it. Um, it didn't work well. You know, it's like that old thing when people win the lottery, they lose it in two years. Yeah. Um, it kind of felt that way. It wasn't real. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that true wealth was coming not from toil or from skill or mm -hmm. from inventiveness. It was coming from something more powerful than that. And I start realizing when I speak to business entrepreneurs, business leaders, that often they're too full of themselves. <laughs> reality is they they will they will equate their own ego as being the reason why big things happen. But I can tell you, as this sort of humble little Australian guy, that big things are happening outside of the human species every single second of every single day. Mm. And I became rich by tapping into that, yeah. not by trying to control it. And, mm. and I learned this as a surfer. You can't control a wave. A wave doesn't care about you. If you think you can fight it, it'll throw you down and hurt you bad. But if you start understanding how it works, mm. you look for patterns, you get in front of it, you don't become an adversary to it. You become something that's symbiotic with it. It will pick you up and it will transfer its power to you and you will get the ride of your life. The second I learned that, I got rich. That's, that's awesome. what's the missing link that no one teaches you mm. in school. I mean, yeah. here, I didn't even finish high school and I could tell you that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And it is. It, it's like... The old saying, go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to say to people, don't work hard. I'm not saying Correct. that or don't, Correct. you know. I'm saying that don't take yourself so seriously because mm -hmm. there are bigger factors at stake. And if you can somehow just transcend the ego, you'll see it. I'm sounding sound like the Dalai Lama now. <laughs> I'm not trying to. <laughs> I'm just saying that that would be some yeah. one reason that I've discovered traveling around the world. It, it always seems to follow true in that I, I look at advantage. I'm here in Mexico right now because a number of years back, well, there's many reasons, but a number of years back, I could see the waning nature of the United States and Chinese trade relationship. Uh, I understood having seen what Australia had gone through with China as a, as a trading partner, that there was a, a very major downside risk of dealing with a, a country, which in effect was adversarial to its trading partners. Mm, right. And as a result of that, I 
predicted that the United States and, and most corporations that are choosing to do business in China will probably retreat from that position and find themselves in a difficult state because if they can't buy cheap Barbie dolls from Shanghai, where are they going to get them? Mm. And I predicted Mexico and it worked correctly. And as a result, you know, I bought property a year ago. It's already doubled in value, mm. almost tripled in value. And it's like, well, because the demand is going to be to here, not right. to there, mm -hmm. I'm in front of the wave. And I'm yeah. just waiting for it to crest and I'll continue riding it until I get off. And I don't know, then I'll go to Ecuador or something. I don't know. Just, you'll find that solution, right? Well, you, you have to participate. If, you, mm. if you're in the game, you're not going to get a great ride and if you're sitting on the beach watching everyone else do it. You've got to go get wet. So right. you've got to go and be in the moment and be willing to engage. And then you start seeing the truth because you're in it not yeah. because you're watching it from a, a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed. One of the things that I remember whenever I was doing project management that was somewhat frustrating and there is, you know, I'm all about, you should do some pre-planning and things like that, but oftentimes you missed opportunities because you were so busy looking at the future that you miss being present. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I still think people are that way that they, that they are missing so many opportunities because they are not looking at what they have today and worrying about what's right. not there yet tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we have such a limited life expectancy that you would want to take advantage of every day to maximize what you can get out of it. Um, and I just feel that that's our finite resource. We can be mm -hmm. endlessly wealthy, but we always have a finite number of years on this planet and we need yeah. to take advantage of it. Absolutely. So why do people throw out the traditional concept of retirement or why should they throw that out completely? I have, I retired in 2018. Mm -hmm. I'm 65 now and I'm happy being busy as can be um, doing what I love. So what is your um, thoughts on why they well, should throw all, that out. It still started to formulate for me when I was about 22. Um, my father passed away unexpectedly mm -hmm. and I was the only child in family. So I had to take the role of uh, looking after uh, mm -hmm. my mother and the estate. And, and it was a very young age, so it was quite formative. Yeah. Um, I realized that, again, the buck stops at my desk. It's up to me now to be the master on the ship in the choppy <laughs> waters and... So I, you know, after you go through the the normal grieving process with that, it was then up to me to un, un, sort of unwrap his financial affairs so that my mm -hmm. mother was going to be taken care of. So I I did that alongside my bank manager and, and trying to work out all of these things he had. Um, he died when he was 67. He retired when he was 65. Mm -hmm. He was, yeah, the quintessential 20th century company man, worked mm. 40 years in the same job for the same corporation. Um, he died from, uh, I guess, complications brought upon from lung cancer. And as it happens, he the company he worked for for 40 years 
was a, um, a construction material manufacturer and they specialized in asbestos tiles. Oh. So he devoted his life to his cause, which he thought was to serve the company. Mm. And the company never served him. In fact, the company killed him. And I'm yeah. not saying that it was a direct, uh, it's very hard to correlate direct responsibility to their actions. But I can say in the years that followed, watching their um, inaction and hiding behind lawyers and avoiding class action lawsuits and all these sorts of things was um, abhorrent to watch. Having said that, I also realized that my father put aside every important thing in his life that he valued, travel, spending more time with his wife, um, my, myself, the family. Mm -hmm. I didn't really get a chance to get to know him until he retired because he was always busy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I cherish those moments. I was on the golf course playing with him because I got to learn who he was as a person, not as a father, but as a person. And that was really powerful. But to have that taken away so quickly mm -hmm. um, was was hard. Yeah, I looked at the whole thing and I started to realize that this was not an uncommon situation. Mm -hmm. I could see a lot of people falling into the same trap. Many years later, I stumbled upon, a, a, I think, a, either a TV series or a, or a paper or new, maybe a blog from the BBC in London uh, that was talking about a study that came out of Washington State from the Boeing Corporation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was called, it's called the Boeing Study. And apparently what had happened was the, uh, the Boeing Corporation were attempting to work out how much money they needed to put aside for the pension programs for their workforce. And uh, it all came down to assessing life expectancy. So what they would do is they would look at when somebody was going to retire from their job how long they were likely to live and they would budget, you know, accordingly. Mm -hmm. So they studied uh, people who worked until the age of 55, which is the <laughs> earliest point of retirement that they would allow them a pension. Um, they discovered that those people lived until an average age of about 83 years old. So I looked at those numbers and I thought, well, that sounds scientifically correct. Um, no, Nothing to, you know, get freaked out about here. They then did, uh, and this was where the BBC were shocked about it, they then jumped forward and said, well, let's look at what, how long do people live when they're 60, uh, 65, because we'll assume that there's less we need to fund in the pension because they've worked another 10 years. And the shocking uh, truth was they discovered that the average age, average life expectancy of a 65-year-old worker was 67. So all of a sudden it's like, that's my father. Yeah. So I started to research this and I could see so many stories like this. And um, so I, I, I spoke to people who were experts in psychology and they were telling me that of all the things that are the greatest stresses in one's life, um, the top of the tree is death of a spouse. That's the worst. But two down from that is retirement. And the reason is that people don't adjust to it because it's a change of identity you know you've worked for 40 years you identify yourself as your job who you are i'm a this i'm an optometrist i'm a, a lawyer i'm a i don't know a school teacher whatever it might be you identify yourself as that when people bump into you in starbucks who you know and want to 
start up a conversation, inevitably the, the, the question comes up, so what do you do? And you say, well, I'm retired, but I used to be a blah. And that establishes an identity, an identity that you yourself uh, embrace and that they start to understand. You take that away. And people don't know how to hold yeah. themselves up. Yeah. And that happened to my father. And it's funny, I was telling this story at a financial um, event in Phoenix uh, in front of a bunch of people of all different varieties, a lot of people from um, uh, retirement planning, you know, personal finance people. And I thought it was a bit dangerous because they don't want to, they don't want to talk about this stuff because mm -hmm. they're looking at, well, how long can we milk the guy out of his, you know, while he's pushing 401k investments and whatever. So I'm like, oh, okay. If I, if I start telling you this, you're going to hate me, but I'm going to tell you the story. And I said the story and anyway, it went over, finished the speech. I'm, I'm cleaning up from the podium afterwards. And this lady comes up to me and uh, she was, yeah, I'd say she was about mid sixties. And she says, you know, I, I heard you talking about the Boeing study and the life expecting thing. And I'm like, uh oh, here we go. <laughs> She's going to have a piece of me here um, because I probably said something that upset her. And she goes, well, I work for Honeywell. I'm like, well, I used to work for Honeywell. She retired. I used to be the CFO. I'm like, whoa, okay. That's cool. Well, um, so yeah, I hope I didn't upset you or anything. No, in fact, you said we did the exact same studies with our pension program as Boeing did, and we came up with the identical same numbers. I'm like, I couldn't believe it. It's exactly the same. So then I took that information and I went back to researching it, and I discovered that if you're trying to find out what the actual life expectancy of people uh, in the United States are, the best source of that is, of all things, the CDC, the Center of Disease Control. And this is going back pre-COVID when I was doing this research. They used to publish annual life expectancy numbers for U.S. male and U.S. female, uh, and they've been doing it forever. Surprisingly, they don't do it now. Uh, at least I haven't seen it yet. It may be something that they stopped doing during COVID or whatever, but they haven't done it for a while but the last numbers i got i think i started tracking this at about 2016 through to 2019 in 2016 the u.s male average life expectancy was 79.5 years which um i guess if i got that that age i'd be pretty happy if i get beyond it i'd be ecstatic but you know that's that's numbers don't seem to be out of line, you compare that with a lot of other Western countries like Canada, Western Europe, and so on. And they typically do have a couple of extra years up their sleeve in the way they they operate over there. But we're in that sort of you know area. But if you start tracking it year by year, from 2016 to 2019, you see the numbers start dropping. And it goes from 79.5 in 2016 to 75.3 in 2019. In that span of, what, four years, we've lost four years of life. And I looked at this and I thought, my God, if this continues at this pace, this exponential drop in life expectancy, you'll be lucky to make 67. Uh, because if you go and work a full life and you're just socking money away for a 65-year-old retirement, well, according to the CDC, if you're a male, you're going to get maybe 
maybe eight to 10 years of life out of that. And I thought, this is insane. Um, they haven't published the numbers since COVID because in general, the statistics will skew even worse because of the high death rates that we've seen. But the problem is what's happening is that we are, if you, if you then look at everything in reverse, we are telling our children at the age of 18 around the kitchen table, you know, when Jimmy or Mary wants to go and, you know, have a, a career or whatever, they don't know what they, who they are yet. They haven't had any identity yet. They haven't had any experience. They haven't been around the block. They haven't even traveled. They've got no idea who they are. And yet as parents, and I know this being a parent myself, it's rule number one to keep them safe. So what do we do? We say, sign that bit of paper. I know you're not old enough to even get a beer in a bar in most states, but sign that contract for $100,000 and we're going to send you to this college or that college. And it's okay. You'll do four years. You'll have the college experience. You'll come out and you'll be guaranteed a ticket on the middle-class train and this is what we tell our kids because we as parents are scared to death that we put our kids in harm way, harm's way. So we think, put them in a bubble, put them in the university situation. They'll come out the other end and maybe they'll be a doctor or a lawyer or something. And we think of that as we can be as parents proud of that. The reality is 85% of all college graduates don't do what they majored in. That is not their career. And to spend $100,000 that you cannot discharge even in bankruptcy to go and lose four years of potential momentum in the in life and come out the other end and be, be uh, accredited in something that you never use mm -hmm. is insanity to me. And yet this is normal. And and you start looking at the other normalities of this, then, you know, the kids got saddled with the student loan debt, so it takes them longer before they can afford to go into what I call the second quarter of their life, the building phase, where they're trying to build an identity and a career and a family and a house and all those things. Well, that requires capital, capital that you just gave away for the degree that's not yeah. helping you. Right. So now... You've got to undo that mistake very, very quickly and somehow amass enough money to make a deposit so you can buy, say, a home because you want to be on the property ladder. Well, the definition of mortgage in French, if you speak French, is death contract. The whole idea is if you delay the start until, let's say, you're 30 because you've got this student loan debt, you're paying that sucker off until you're 60. The problem also is, let's say that you refinance it because mm -hmm. everyone does two or three times over, maybe more. And all of a sudden you reset the clock back to zero all the time. You keep resetting the clock. And it's not surprising, as you probably know, that we get to the age of 65 and only about 28% of people can afford to retire. Mm -hmm. Now I'm here in Mexico. I'm surrounded by expats and they all have incredibly um, rich stories of their lives, what they've done, who they are. And I keep asking the question, well, why are you here? And the common answer is, I can't afford to retire mm -hmm. in the USA. And there are always exceptions, right? But 
I'm surrounded by the people who are living on social security and maybe a little bit of extra money. And that statistic you see of the average amount of money people put aside for their retirement, it's like a hundred thousand or 200,000 that doesn't get you anywhere in life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm not trying to be morose or depressing about these statistics, but it has, there has to be a better way. Mm -hmm. There has to be, I'm not going to work for 40 years to just become part of that 78% paycheck to paycheck life and give all of my attention to an employer at a job I probably hate. I'm probably sitting in the cubicle looking out the window and giving him 10% of what I can really do because mm -hmm. I'm not passionate about oh, this, mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to just roll it out because there's a pension coming or there's retirement coming or I'm going to hang out until I'm 65. I'm just going to keep stocking my money away. Maybe they've got a great 401k matching program or whatever. It's like you get to 65 and, and I'm not far from it either, right? But you get to that age and all of a sudden, yeah, now I get that chance to go to Germany or Tuscany or whatever. And I've got a bad back. Or I got a bad hip, or my eyesight's not as good as it used to be, or you know, is this is this what you want to save up for? <laughs> so I kind of said, this is nuts. It, it, yes, it did work in the twentieth century; it really did, but it doesn't work anymore today. And to see the statistics of of people my daughter's age, she's twenty five. The, the whole concept of like quiet quitting and and their uh, their attitude towards uh, capitalism and and mm. the things that that are, don't really make gradual sense to me but that's okay that that's their world they've got to have the baton and they've got to go with it and then, you know they're going to fall down and they're going to dust themselves off just <laughs> like we all did and hopefully they're strong enough in character yeah, that, you know but we've raised a, a generation of every child wins a prize. So I'm worried about that, but I'm also thinking, okay, you guys are going to be saddled with a challenge to try to work this stuff out, but let's get real about what I call the social mantra, what we think our values are, mm -hmm. go to college, study hard, get a good job, work hard, save, and one day you can retire when you're 65. No, <laughs> let's call BS on that right to begin with. And let's say, how about this idea? How about you go off into the world, spend a few years bartending in Tokyo or do whatever you want and go out there and find yourself in adversary positions where you can understand the true power you have as an individual. And with that, the confidence that you will bring back mm. and the passion and the observations of who you find yourself to be will therefore denote what you want to be. And maybe then if you need tertiary education, I guarantee you won't be part of an 85% that don't end up doing what they ended up uh, studying. And that's... that's so I'm, I'm somewhat of an example of that. I, I couldn't afford to go to college. I was the second oldest and my sister went to college. So I went right into a, a six-month business school and then that I paid for it. And then I just went to work and at 50, I got my college degree, but it was in a degree in what I was doing. And so like, I, 
had a great GPA because uh, it wasn't one of those things like, uh, do, do I believe that what I'm learning here, I can actually use? <laughs> and plus I've been there, done that. So I was able to respond well for testing because I lived it practically. And so um, the degree meant more to me than it might have at my twenties. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it also gave me greater insight because of the confidence that I had been building doing what I did without a college degree that whenever it came time in my fifties to say, have people tell me that they were better than me. And I was like, no, I know what I can do. And you know, the, so my confidence was so much stronger. I always say I appreciated the college experience much more than if I would have done that right out of high school. Yeah. I actually think I wish more people would do that. I really yeah. do because I think there's there's we need doctors, we need nurses, we need people of those of those qualifications. But more importantly, and I have a lot of friends who are doctors, but more importantly, we need people who have chosen a path that they're passionate about. Yeah. And then if you and this is it's the long way back to your original question. Um, why why should we not worry? Why should we exclude the word retirement from our vocabulary? Um, I believe that if you're doing what you love, it's not work. Yeah. And therefore, why would you never, why would you ever want to stop doing it? Yeah. That's um, exactly the way I feel. People, when they, uh, at, first of all, they didn't realize sometimes that I retired, but, you know, I think that everything that you do, you should love doing and, and not, and not be afraid if it isn't what you love to do something else yeah you know a lot yeah. of times people get in that career and they just stay there I likewise I, yeah i was gonna say I, I think a lot of reason for that is that there's a bubble around work particularly in middle class say corporate work mm -hmm. um because it's probably i mean it can be a pain you know you're always dealing with somebody else's dream you're on the boss's timeline, you know, got deadlines to meet that aren't yours. And, and it can be very frustrating, but at the same time, it's psychologically quite a powerful thing to avoid having to look at yourself in the mirror a lot. Right. You're, you're, you're distracted outward to all of somebody else's uh, projects. And yet you never really look at yourself and realize what makes me happy? What what do I love? What do I embrace? What are my ideals? What are my uh, values? Mm -hmm. uh, other than what were taught to me at a as a child, what have I learned? Um, you know, helping somebody on the side of a road fix a tire, or mm -hmm. if you God forbid you had to go to war as a soldier, and you know, what did I learn in the trenches with mm -hmm. my buddies? How can I take that and know that it empowers me rather than curses me. Yeah. And then that that power that comes from that experience can then be turned around to do good for other people. Yeah. And those right. things don't, you don't address those things sitting in a cubicle. No. <laughs> well, and, and you tend to, excuse me, you tend to try to avoid the things that are hard and difficult. And, you know, I always love where you, you talk about your character as a diamond and the more rough edges that you polish off and, and all of that makes you shine so much brighter. And 
and it's going through that, you know, pressure. Excuse me. Yes, going through the pressure that really is helping you to grow. So why is the wrong, uh, why is the wrong sort of debt toxic? Um, I think when you, whenever you start something new in life, even if it, it like, I, like I always use these terms like uh, four quarters of life where you've mm -hmm. got the, the first 20 odd years when you're a child and you're under the umbrella of your parents and mm -hmm. really your responsibilities are to learn to communicate, to learn to walk, talk, uh, to learn to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually you you leave the nest and then you go to the second quarter, your building phase. Your third quarter is optimization where you say, I've actually learned something. I'm now going to try and milk the, the reward out of as much as I can because that fourth quarter is your waning period when you're actually, um, that's going to be your twilight years, mm -hmm. should we call it. So if we look at it that way, um, debt that follows you from quarter to quarter is really bad mm -hmm. in my opinion. And that like any business uh, startup, the first thing they're going to need is capitalization mm -hmm. because they can't do anything until they can actually acquire the things they need, the the plant and equipment, the machinery, the, the licensing, the intellectual property protection, um, all those things that are needed by any new venture. Those sorts of debts make sense because they're put in context with a payoff. Mm -hmm. That is, we, we take on debt and our goal is to pay it off and to have something bigger than what it was before we did it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't take that mor uh, moral mission into it and you just use debt as an excuse to avoid doing things a little harder in the early stages, yeah. Uh, then you live in a world where debt is purely toxic because it's it's a virus you can't get rid of easily, uh, particularly if it's very long-term debt. We could say, well, people have to get a mortgage because they want to get a home and everything. And I, and I get that. But interestingly, I live here in Mexico. There is no such thing as a mortgage in Mexico. Yeah, Everything is paid in cash. Homes are passed down the family chain from you know, parent to child and, and will continue to. And although they might not have the most lavish McMansions that you see everywhere in middle-class America, they might, what goes on behind the door when you open it is a really beautiful thing. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the concept of La Familia, the family where everybody works together and, and solve the problems as a unit, as a team, is so strong in this mm. culture. It's it's a remarkable. And the one thing, it doesn't come down to money. I, I've learned over the course of my life that if I need to solve problems, I can either learn how to do it and do it myself, investing mm. time, right. or I can pay somebody to do it for me, investing money. Right. The problem is after I've paid somebody to do it for me and I get the problem solved, I am no smarter yeah. no wiser and no more skilled than i was when i began the process mm -hmm. and i'm poorer <laughs> particularly <laughs> poorer true. if i used a credit card or something like that but i would prefer to, to be able to embrace the idea of being more 
of a renaissance man and learn to do the thing myself. You know, I, I, my car breaks down. How about I learn how to fix it? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've got a, a, a leaky roof. How about I get on the ladder and go up there and see why? <laughs> it's like we don't do that. And and mm -hmm. our reason is that we live in a we live in a society of what I call a closely coupled society. And what I mean by that, and we appreciate that and from a business standpoint, is that we have decided that this interconnectedness of things that is mm -hmm. part of our Western world is so closely coupled that we cannot afford any link in a chain to break without it destroying everything in its process. Mm -hmm. The supply chain, uh, you know, recent fiascos we've seen and can't get toilet paper or, you know, we're out of eggs or, or whatever it might be, uh, just symptoms of a greater problem that we are so closely coupled in everything we do that we have absolutely no slack. Mm. And because there's no slack, there's no rubberization between the interconnected parts. Everything is like directly mm. joined together. If your bank goes down tomorrow and you can't get that, that money out of the bank, oh, it's an emergency. If you can't get the social security check from the government next week to help pay your rent, I'm going to get evicted. Um, it's like, where is the, there's no slack. Mm -hmm. And we can build a lot of that up to our, to our own advantage to some degree, but we've been told in a world of corporate wealth and, and wall street and, and more is better that we should go faster. And I'm looking at this going, no, we should not. We should slow down and build some slack into this so that we can accommodate when things don't go the way we planned. Mm -hmm. We, you know, I, as a software developer in a very early age, you learn that uh, most <laughs> failures that occur in software isn't necessarily because somebody writes bad code or that's a bit of it, but 90% of it comes from somebody who didn't stop and understand what the requirements were they never actually asked the question, what should I build here? What do you need me to build? Mm -hmm. They got a very cursory overview and it's like, okay, leave it with me. And they rush to the keyboard. Well, that's exactly what I mean. We need mm -hmm. to slow down. We need mm -hmm. to start to understand and look at and question the approaches that we have, not just rush it more, more, more all the time because we're living in a world that can't, it just can't handle any more of this. It's going to break. Yeah. One of the hardest things as a project lead for me always was my, whenever I started a program or a project, I always forced them to talk about, you know, what they have, what, what are they trying to accomplish? Where are the gaps? What's the process that you have today and where does it work and where doesn't it work? And they, they didn't want to do that beginning information gathering because they wanted to start doing the work. Right. And, and then you had to redo work because you didn't do that beginning stages. Like for me, it's like, take the time in the beginning and you'll save the time in the end. Absolutely. Measure twice, cut once. Yeah. So can anyone become financially free in the 21st century, even if they are on a minimum wage job? Uh, yeah. And the way that I try to 
teach this is to understand to run your life like a business and to not run your life firstly understand the nature of business finance mm-hmm. um, and i'm not talking about loaning money i'm talking about how you account for things particularly things like an income statement a profit and loss statement and run your life that way because when you start realizing that the income you generate at the top is then it that's not important it's not what you earn that matters it's what you keep mm. it's what's at the very bottom and the best way of actually addressing that and we we live in a world where people they love watching their Instagram influencers or their YouTube celebrities, and they're all flexing out there in their Lambos and, you know, showing off, which is all rented, right? I mean, we we know that, but we all love to live in this illusion that one day I too could live like the Kardashians or whatever. I mean, that's um, how our society uh, believes it should be goal-oriented that way. Mm-hmm. And yet the problem is that they they look to uh, a semblance of success based on what they earn. I earn a six-figure salary. I earn a seven-figure salary or whatever. Yet most people end up living in a world of lifestyle inflation where they Mm. actually don't keep any of it. Mm. And they fall prey to high taxation. They lose a lot of subsidies that they could get if they were earning less money. Mm. Um, They don't have as much time and therefore they outsource most things and learn nothing. And with all of these things, I looked at the whole thing and thought, well, it really doesn't matter how much you earn as long as you earn more than you expend. Mm-hmm. So what if we were to turn a profit and loss statement upside down and focus on the expense? And a good friend of mine in Australia said that there was a saying that he was raised within his family. And I think it's so powerful because $1 saved is $3 earned. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because, I mean, think about what it takes to, to have a job, to go yeah. and earn money. You, know? you have to have a decent car that you can sit in traffic when everyone else does as well that's not going to blow up on you so that you can get to the work. You need to dress well. You probably need a Starbucks to kickstart the brain because you're being you know, expected to perform at a high level. Um, you've got to have a good phone, you've always got to be available, so and so on. You sell a lot of your relationship with family out um, without really, I mean, as much as we all want to say, no, we don't do that, I make sure I put my family first. No, <laughs> I've worked in corporate America long enough to know that mm. doesn't happen, mm. right? But we just don't get real about it. But we, the cost of having that job can be so expensive mm. because we're, what I often find, this is kind of comical, is that you go to work, people work hard and they make some money and if they make a little bit extra money, they they will brag to their work buddies that they just bought the latest Mercedes or the latest BMW or whatever because they want to look like they're all successful when they go to work. And what do you do with that car? Oh, I spend all of my time sitting in traffic to go to work every day. <laughs> you know, when you don't work at an office, and you look at the car in the garage that hasn't been moved for three days and you go, why did I spend 50,000 for that? (laughs) And then you start realizing it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Mm -hmm. And so you start looking at everything upside down. You start pairing off the expenses 
and you start working out where your big ticket line items are. Now, if you're smart and you do your numbers properly, this isn't hard to do. But I don't know too many people who do their numbers because they're so frantically in the cycle of, I must make more income, that they mm. don't realize that it's like sand in your hands. It's just going through and you're capturing uh-huh. none of it. So with that said, you could be on minimum wage, which I mean, like 15 an hour or 20 an hour. What do you think college students do? They mm. can earn that and they can get by quite well. Many of them can make enough money. They end up paying for their college. Mm-hmm because they paired their expenses back to the absolute bare minimum and there's five of them in a room and they house hack and they if they want to travel somewhere they work out how to get a credit card to get frequent flyer points to do it for free and you know it's like i remember those days they were fun how about we do that when we're 50 (laughs) see and and the 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 thing that i think keeps a lot of people from doing that is that those people around them trying to to compete with others rather than just saying i'm just going to make sure i'm happy (laughs) and not try to be like anybody else you know i don't have to have if i my house is big enough for me and my family then i i'm happy with that it doesn't have to be more because somebody else has more right exactly especially if you can pay that sucker off yeah i mean if you can find a way to pay that thing down because the the golden rule is you can't retire if you've got a mortgage period. Mm-hmm. So if you think that way and you do still want to entertain the, the R word, um, retire, then you can probably retire early if you can pay the house off. Um, if that's your mission, then go for it. At least you won't be giving, you know, three times the amount of the original principal to a banker who's just going to drive their Lambos around Wall Street. (laughs) Okay, it's time for rapid fire right now. Okay. So there's, um, we're just going to do a few since we're running out of time, but why should people get a passport, which I agree, and travel, which I agree? (laughs) Uh, Because it widens the vision. Yeah. And all of a sudden you can see much more lateral perspective of something rather than deep diving down the middle i agree just gives you such better perspective and share um about what your vision is for this mexico adventure that you're on oh okay i'll try and give you a short answer it's a tricky one though (laughs) so in the mid 1990s so in from 1990 to 1995 when i landed in california uh, i was for the early part of that period i was stuck in an immigration um, horrible place where i couldn't get a work permit for about Mm -hmm. six months and during that time uh, i was newly married my wife had was working and i was just sitting around this apartment in in, uh, near it's a place called studio cities next to hollywood mm-hmm. and uh i was a i was raised a musician um i was very lucky to be blessed as a as a early prodigy violinist um mm. but i didn't i i gave up the violin after i was about 12 and took up classical guitar and mm. eventually became a guitarist anyway i i loved playing guitar i was in bands in australia before i left and i you know found myself with nothing to do in Hollywood. 
as a guitarist. Well, what do you think that's going to turn out to be? <laughs> so, you know, I spend my days going into Guitar Center and just playing all their instruments until they kick me out and then I go to the next place. Anyway, they used to have these uh, billboards on, this, on the thing like, you know, bandmates wanted, mm. band members wanted. And I, I applied for a couple of uh, gigs and I ended up getting in a band that did pretty good, pretty well there. And um, we just about got a record deal. And just before this was about to happen, we were being romanced by all these record labels. And then eventually uh, I spent a lot of time in big recording studios because the labels wanted to see how well you do uh, in a studio environment. And being a technical guy, I always loved the studio because I could see on the other side of the glass, there was all this knobs and wonderful <laughs> you know, cool technical, stuff. yeah, cool gadgety stuff and lights blinking and everything. And so I started befriending the engineers and the producers and um, one guy who happened to be the producer for the band Tears for Fears Oh, yeah. uh, had uh, said to me, um, we, uh, the music industry was going through a transition from what they called analog, which was when everyone recorded onto tape, into digital, where everyone mm -hmm. started to record in the computers and so on. And I was a computer guy. And so he says to me, how about you teach me about these computers and networks and all that stuff, and I'll teach you about the recording studio. I'm like, are you kidding? Of course. Some fun <laughs> I mean, that you know, one. What a deal, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what happened. I ended up spending a way too much time in recording studios and I eventually built my own studio. And anyway, things go along with this, this journey. Fast forward to 1995, 96, somewhere around there. I am working in Hollywood at this horrible old dingy recording studio called Grandmaster Recorders. And I was like a contract engineer working there because I, you know, studios, you can work at night. I had a mm -hmm. day job, but you could work at night uh, because that's when most of the work was done anyway. So I'd pick up contracts doing that. And I, I did some really great bands. A lot of them, I, I was working for Capitol Records as a freelance um engineer helping them develop acts that they were trying to uh, bring over to to capital emi anyway i um i loved it and i was getting along great with all the musicians and because i you know i can't understand them and and i'm playing with all this really cool <laughs> stuff and one day the guy upstairs comes down and he says look um we've got this band coming in from out of state next week can you do it can you engineer they've got a producer but they don't really have an engineer so you know our gear better than anybody can you take care of these guys and i'm like sure yeah no problem so i signed it up it just so happened two days later i get a phone call from australia my mother had had a car accident mm. and i had to go back down there to take care of her and as it happened, she was in such a bad state, which we weren't aware of, mm. that I ended up living there for four years and she eventually passed away mm. um, before I came back to Australia, uh, back to the United States. But that was, you know, I had to call up the guy at the studio and go, look, I'm sorry, buddy, I can't do it. I've got, you know, I've got to go back and goes out there. You do it. I'll find somebody else. Anyway, so 20 odd years later, 25 years later, I'm in Guadalajara in Mexico and uh, I'm getting shoulder surgery done from some leftover work that happened from a car accident I was in. And uh, 
It was great, fantastic medical. If you ever want to get really, really good, high quality medical cheap, that's the place to go. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I'm sitting in an Airbnb in Guadalajara because I didn't want to leave the city until everything is stabilized. So I planned to be there for four weeks. My wife and I were just in this Airbnb. And of course, you know, I'm sitting around, what am I going to do? So I bought one of those little set top Android TV player things and plugged into the TV in the HDMI port there. And I'm watching YouTube videos all day, <laughs> stupid waste of time, but no, it, it was a lot of fun, but I kept gravitating to people who are in the uh, recording business in music. It was like, I put this aside for 20 something years to raise a daughter and raise a family and have a career and focus on, mm -hmm. on all of that. And then here I am sitting in this unit and on comes this episode about this guy who was the producer for the Foo Fighters, one of the yeah. biggest bands ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll listen to this guy. He says, oh, yeah, well, I used to, I brought them, you know, we're up in Seattle and they're doing this thing and they wanted to record this album. They came down to, to Hollywood and we did it in the studio called Grandmaster Recorders. And I'm like, what? That's where I used to work. <laughs> like, oh, wow, that's cool. Tell me more. So he starts telling the story and he tells about, you know, how they came down and they did all this stuff. And, and then he dropped the date of this and it was like my face went white, pale. I was supposed to be the engineer on that project. Um. And I sat there. My wife looked at me and she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, and I explained it. And she's like, oh, my God. You were supposed to be the engineer on the biggest, on the second Foo Fighters album, <laughs> the biggest one they ever had. You would, that was you. Yeah. It's like, Oh my gosh. So she says, we've got to fix this. I'm like, well, how do you fix that? Well, I can't go back in time. I'm not Doctor Who. Um, and she's like, no, you, you've, you've not, you've got 20 odd years of working opportunity or, you know, energy left in you. Why don't you go back and try and rekindle that part of your life mm. now? Cause I, I was getting really dejected in the software game. I wasn't interested in mm -hmm. it. Um, and I said, well, how could we do that? And the more, the, you know, gears start moving ahead. And the next thing you know, well, we could sell some real estate. We could do this. We could cash this out. We could <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Fast forward, I buy an acre of land with a bullfighting ring on it, demolish <laughs> the ring. And now I'm building the recording studio, which I now find out because I tend to do things, go big or go home for some reason. It's going to be the largest recording studio in Latin America. And it just so happens I've been traveling all over the world sourcing little pieces of gear uh, for this studio. And I've collected so many, I guess you call it museum pieces that are from, you know, from history. Um, I have the microphone that ACDC used from all through the 70s until 1979 for every single one of their albums, Bon Scott sang into this microphone. I have it sitting in a drawer here. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's like it's like a classic piece of history. I found a, a recording console in a storage locker in New Jersey in the middle of the freezing cold. I had to go, go there and, 
and resurrect this thing, which is this massive thing the size of a car, and somehow get it crated and shipped to Mexico. Mm. And I, I did it. And it's sitting here in San Miguel ready for the studio. The studio is an exact replica of George Martin, who used to be the producer of The mm. Beatles, his studio in the Caribbean, which was uh, famous, uh, Air Studios Montserrat. Montserrat. Mm. Um, it's where Dire Straits did all of their brothers in arms, like Money for Nothing. It's where Elton John did his work. Rolling Stones reformed there. Um, Jimmy Buffett. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I made friends with some of the guys who originally built that studio who's still surprisingly alive and now they're helping me build mine because it's going to be an exact replica of that studio well and, we're gonna we're gonna have to have you back when that yeah. is done to just kind of give us some insights as to um what you're doing with that <laughs> and, and showing us some pictures and things for sure it, it, it is time now for me to quickly show my slides of how you can get in contact so you can go to his website which is www.beunconstrained.com again that's www.beunconstrained.com his twitter is the same, Be Unconstrained. He has a podcast, The Unconstrained Podcast, and a blog. And I just, if you just want to mention the uh, the blog is also Be Unconstrained. Is that correct? Uh, it's on the website. So yeah, it's on the website, the website right. and find all the articles. So I would encourage you all to check out his website, check out the podcast, and um, also the blog, and um, comment on how you um, like what he has out there. Also, go ahead and make sure you subscribe to this podcast, the Find Your Leadership Con Confidence podcast. It has been such a great time hearing your stories. I could probably spend hours talking to you. We'll have to definitely do this again. Okay, and, sure. And um, you, you think you'll have that, that done in uh, that compound oh, yeah. done in six months? No problem. Easy, <laughs> easy. Awesome. Well, it has been such a joy talking with you. I, again, could have talked with you for hours and hours. You're so interesting and such great information shared. Again, everyone go to unconstrained.com. As always, I tell everyone that life is a journey and it is up to you to enjoy the ride. This is Vicki Nettling signing off. Thank you for tuning into the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling, where we share impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Remember to visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're here, subscribe to us via your favorite network. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast.